Father's Day, guys, uh, as uh, Pastor Todd said, make sure you avail yourself of uh, some stuff we got out there for you. We appreciate you. I appreciate me as a dad. Guys, listen. Fatherhood is a challenge. It is one of the highest callings that God can place on a man's life. And so we want you to know that uh, we value you, that what you do is important. We were talking earlier about how nearly one-fourth of the kids in America uh, live in homes that are fatherlessness, without fathers. And so the impact of that and what you do and how you invest in the lives of not just your kids, but your spouses, it makes a huge difference. And so the fact that many of you are even here this morning and you bring your families to church is, uh, is noteworthy. So we just want you to be blessed by our time together this morning. We're actually in Genesis chapter 22, and it tells the story of a father and a son. And I debated on whether or not I should teach this text because it falls in line with where we're at in our study through the book of Genesis, or if I should bring a one-off with Father's Day. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to stick to it, and here's why. This is essentially the crescendo moment in the life of our man Abraham. It's a story of a father and a son, Abraham and Isaac. This is also a story that has been popularized all over the world. Not only is this account found in the Bible, but it's also in the Quran. In fact, skeptics, many modern-day skeptics, point to this text and say, this is the very reason why people should not follow the God of the Bible. It's a challenging one. God is going to ask something of Abraham, and it on the surfaces, it's quite hard to believe. So I want to do two things this morning because it is a very challenging text. I want to bring meaning and clarity to it and understanding to it because what I found is that it's horribly misunderstood, especially in our modern time. So as we go back and place the story in its cultural context, all of a sudden things come to light. And then secondly, I want to help us understand its modern day relevancy to you and me. So here's where we're at. The life of Abraham has been in the making with regard to one specific promise from God to him. And that promise was, Abraham, you and your wife are going to have a son. And this is a big deal, much bigger than you think, because they're both way beyond childbearing years. And to have a child, I mean, that was a sign of God's blessing. And remember, at one point, his name was Abram, which means father, and he has no kids. So that's kind of embarrassing when you introduce yourself. Oh, my name's father. Great. Tell me about your kids. I have none. Then his name gets changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he only has two kids. But there's this promise from God that you and your wife, although you're way beyond childbearing years, you will together have a son. And this son will have many offspring, will become a great nation. Bam! All of a sudden, Sarah gets pregnant. So this boy is born, and this is like the living empirical proof that God is capable of doing what is seemingly impossible. So at this point in his life, there's nothing but enjoyment, success, enjoying his family. And as Isaac gets a little bit older, God speaks to Abraham again. And the conversation is really challenging. This will be far and away his biggest test of obedience. Years earlier, God asked him to sacrifice his homeland. Go forth, leave your, your relatives, go to a place that I will show you, not even gonna tell you exactly where it is. Just trust me and I'll lead you. And so that's what he does. That took a lot of faith, but nothing will compare, nothing will come close to what God is about to ask him 
in this chapter, he's going to be asked to give up something that is most precious. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, that is the birth of his son Isaac, God tested Abraham, right? It's in the text. We're going to talk about that in a second. God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham? And Abraham says, here I am. God tested Abraham. Question. How do you know how strong your faith really is? How do you know what your faith is capable of standing up to? Answer. You don't know until it gets tested. Now, there's a difference between a test and a temptation. We talked a bit about this last week. God tests us for the purpose of strengthening our faith. Satan tempts us for the purpose of weakening our faith. And in your life, you will encounter both. Prime example of this we'll see in a few weeks with the story of this guy named Joseph. He flees from the temptation and he endures the test. And as a result, he learns something about God that he would not know otherwise. He says, I came to this realization that people are evil. (laughs) People will offend you intentionally. They will do evil against you. They will intentionally want to harm you. There's evil in this world. Evil is real. He said, I learned that. And sometimes the darkest forms of evil come at the hands of your own family members. He's like, I I experienced that. But I also experienced how God flips the script and he takes what men and women intend for evil and God turns it into something good. He's like, I would have never known that if I didn't face the temptation and the test. So this is right where our man Abraham is at. And in this moment, there's this quiet conversation that happens between the two of them. But the language communicates a quickening of the text and conversation. I'll show you when that comes. But for now, there's just this quiet conversation and God says, Abraham, I want to talk to you. Abraham says, here I am. And now the the flow becomes a little bit more dramatic and quite uncomfortable to the reader because then God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? Abraham, yeah, here I am. I want you to take your son. Which one? I've got two. Well, Ishmael's older. He's gone. He's long gone. So the one that's in your household, Isaac. Yeah, but God, I love this boy. I know you love him. That's why I said, take the only one that you have now under your roof, the one that you love, and I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah and make him an offering. So it's Father's Day. And intuitively, every good father has this deep sense of protection over his kids and provision. We want to protect and we want to provide. 
And so here's Abraham, and you know what's happening? It's like he's caught between two loves. On one hand, he has this love for his God, and on the other hand, he has this love for his son. And he's torn. And there's a simple principle in life. Ultimately, you can't have two competing loves. You can't have two things that compete for the ultimate love of your life. Jesus put it this way. For some, it's like they love money and they say they love God. And he says, well, you can't love them both because at some point they're gonna be at odds with one another. So what he's saying is in reality, you see, there's a hierarchy to our loves. Now, we get this confused in English. You know, the ancient Hebrews had several different words to describe different kinds of love, to describe their hierarchy of love. We just have one word, love. And so we throw it around kind of loosely. On one hand, we say, I love ice cream. And on the other hand, we say, I love my kids. Are we really talking about the same kind of loves? Depends on how much you like ice cream or <laughs> on what your kids are doing. I get it. But there's a hierarchy of, of loves to our lives. And, and so if I was to ask you, okay, what is the top love? What is the top love in your life? All right, so chances are you're probably going to say something like, uh, well, top love in my life is, is my spouse. Or you might say, well, it's my kids. Well, if you're super spiritual, you might say, it's God. Let me make a suggestion. I'm just going to say something. I'm just going to give you something to think about. What if there's a fourth person that actually competes as ultimate love of your life? And what if that person is you? Self-love is insidious because we can be so very blind to it and it happens in the most subtle ways. Don't answer out loud, but let me ask you this. Have you ever sacrificed your child on the altar of your perfect parenting or at least the way in which people perceive you to be a parent? So one of the, the fun things about raising little boys is that at some point you help them understand that the great outdoors, essentially all of it, is your urinal, right? That's, that's fun for little boys. So if they're in the backyard and they're swimming or, or they're playing ball and they're like, I gotta go, I gotta go. And you're like, well, just find a tree. And they're like, what, really, I can do that? Yeah, find a tree, right? And so they, they do their thing. You know, it's great. It's great to be a, a male. Great to be a boy. So imagine what happened uh, at the neighborhood swim party <laughs> in front of everybody. Kid's off doing his thing behind the neighbor's tree. And I'm horrified. What kind of backwards parenting is this? <laughs> I shamed that kid so fast in front of everybody. And it came so quick. Why? Because I had a lot of self-love going on in that moment. And I sacrificed my kid on that altar. So, just something for you to think about. Keep that in mind. Self-love is very real. It's very prevalent. It's probably a bigger part of your life than you realize. So, Abraham sets out. This is not easy. Wrestling big time. 
What is it that made it possible for him to even take the very first step? I'll tell you what it is. This man had a growing and dynamic relationship with his God. It started in the small things. Leave your family, leave your home. Trust me. I'm going to make you a great nation. I don't have any kids. Trust me, I'll take care of it. Isaac's born. So this is, this is years in the making. This kind of faith doesn't happen overnight. So there's this dynamic relationship wherein God asks him to do something that is way outside of his comfort zone. And if your faith in God is growing, that will be the case with you. If your faith in God is growing, God is going to ask you to do some things that are way outside of your comfort zone. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and he took his boy. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up, and he sees the place. What is this guy thinking? Well, verse 5 gives you a clue. Then Abraham said to his young men, two guys that are with him. Hey, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come to you again. It's interesting. Notice what he says. He says, we will be back. Now, but before we explore that, let me just say this. We need to pause here and we need to ask or maybe better stated, we need to acknowledge the fact that at this point, many will look at this story, as I said earlier, and say, This is the reason why the God of the Bible cannot be trusted. What kind of God is this? What kind of God asks a man to kill his son in order to prove his love? Well, there's a serious misunderstanding here. First of all, God is not saying kill your son. God says make him an offering. Two very different things. This is what gets lost on us in our culture. The Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard says it like this. Imagine a man who hears a sermon on this text explaining that what God is asking for is just blind obedience. He's asking a father to kill his son in order to prove his commitment. That same man then goes home and kills his own son as an act of commitment. The next Sunday, the preacher condemns such a horrible act committed by this man. In other words, what he's he's explaining is, look, if you think that this is about God saying to Abraham, Kill your son so that I know that that will be the proof that you love me. Then you have an ethical problem, right? There's a real ethical dilemma there, right? Just like that messes with you theologically. Like, well, what is it about God? Like, he's making me jump through these hoops in order to prove that I love him. That's not what the text says. The text says make him an offering. And listen carefully. This kind of languaging and this ask would have made sense to Abraham. Actually, it would have been... it would have been perfectly reasonable, and here's why. In our own time, we, uh, we have this sense that God owes us all something. This is why when things don't go the way we want them to in life, we're quick to say, God, you better change this situation. God, do you know what's happening here? Things shouldn't be like this, right? Change them. We feel that God owes us something. Back in Abraham's day, it wasn't like that at all. They understood that they offended God, that they broke God's laws, that they were sinners, and that their sin was a personal offense against God. And because of this, there was a debt that was owed. It was a sin debt. So this is where the concept of the firstborn comes into play. So the firstborn had special rights and privileges. So for example, if mom and dad died, 
the inheritance wouldn't be split equally between the children. The firstborn would get the bulk of the inheritance. Why? Because it was the firstborn son's responsibility to take care of the family. So he was the one that got the assets so that he could take care of everybody. Part of that included, as his responsibility, the debt that the family owed. Abraham understands all of this. And this is especially difficult for Abraham because Ishmael, his son Ishmael has gone, he's left, he's doing his thing, and it's just Isaac. And Isaac was the fulfillment of all hopes and dreams that Abraham had. And now he's asking him to make an offering out of this boy. God doesn't say, kill your son, make him an offering. There's a big big difference so what happens in life is God often gives us what we want and that's what happened in the case of Abraham and Sarah and then when we get what we want we have a tendency to turn those things into idols and worship them or more to the point they become crutches that we start to lean on so what happens when God begins to move those crutches And you, you're no longer leaning on those things anymore. Is this God's way of saying, Abraham, all of your hopes and dreams have been tended to this child, but they're misplaced. I'm calling in the debt. And that falls on the firstborn. God's saying the firstborn is actually mine. So this offering made sense to Abraham if God would have said to Abraham, go kill your son. Abraham would have said, that's murder and I'm not doing it. But when God says the firstborn has the responsibility of carrying the family debt, I'm calling that debt in. That's exactly how Timothy Keller explains it this way. In a family-oriented society, the firstborn is God's way of saying, you have a debt. I'm calling it in. It's time to be paid. This is why Abraham doesn't even question God, and he doesn't even hesitate. There's no pushback. So at this point in the text, it kind of picks up a little bit. You think of a heartbeat, it's kind of like, hey, Abraham, yeah, God, boom, 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 boom. Hey, I want you to offer, I want you to offer Isaac as a, as a sacrifice. And the text is beginning to pick up pace. Now, um, ask this question. It's an important one. Why would, uh, why would Abraham even consider this? Well, because he's been walking with God, he has seen God pull off the impossible before. Additionally, there's this promise that's still hanging out there that is yet to be fulfilled. God said, I'm gonna give you a son. That promise was fulfilled. But then he went on to say that this son is gonna have offspring, and through this offspring, you're gonna be blessed. In fact, all families on earth are gonna be blessed. Now, here's the problem. How can Isaac have kids, he's young, He's not married, he doesn't have any kids. How can God fulfill this promise and yet still call in the debt? Hebrews 11 
says this, Abraham was thinking about what God said regarding Isaac. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. How is that promise gonna be fulfilled if he's dead? Hebrews 11 explains exactly more what, uh, of what Abraham was thinking. It says that he considered that God was able even to raise, look at this, to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he actually did receive him back. So this faith was in, in the process. The first thing got, that Abraham uh, hears from God is leave your, leave your land, leave your family. Okay, I can take that step. This faith journey, God provides, God provides, fulfills his promises. Now the ultimate test, offer up your son. Now the action actually slows down a bit. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. You have to, you have to picture this, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went to both of them together and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, hey dad, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. I don't see the lamb for the burnt offering. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went on together. Interesting, right? Abraham carries all of the dangerous stuff himself. He's packing that knife away. Boy can't see that. He's also got the fire ready. I see wood, Dad, but I don't see the sacrificial lamb. Abraham's response gives you insight into where his head and heart are because he says, God will provide the lamb. Now, that Hebrew word for provide is a really cool one because it literally means to see or to see to. So in other words, Abraham says, um, son, you and I can't see everything that's going on right now. We may not understand everything that's about to happen. There are things we can't see. But here's what we know, son. God is going to see to it. God himself will see to it, and he will provide the lamb. This is the takeaway of this chapter. God will provide the sacrifice. More on that in a second. So when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, laid the wood in order, and he binds his son lays him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Kind of a sad scene, super tense. There's no dialogue between father and son perhaps a few tears. Both are obedient in their own way. Abraham is over 100 years old. Isaac is young. Isaac can outdo his dad. But both are obedient in their own way. And 
the word that's used to describe knife is not like a kitchen knife. It's more like a meat cleaver. This is the language of slaughter. And he raises the knife in his mind thinking what? God, you fulfilled some crazy promises in the past. There's a few out there that are lingering. I didn't know how, how I was going to trust you and what you said before, but I did, and you always came through. Now, if I was to go through with this, I know that you're capable of bringing this boy back to life and fulfilling your promise. So here we go. Wait! Abraham! Abraham! See, what we learn is that it was never God's intention for him to go through with it. Abraham endures the test. And what does he learn about God? I'm going to tell you something really profound. You know what he learns about God? If Abraham, every chapter in Genesis, listen, points forward to Jesus. If Abraham, this is why the cross, the story of Abraham and Isaac makes no sense apart from the cross of Jesus. If Abraham was at the cross, he would say, God, now I know without a doubt that you love me because you did not withhold your own son. I had, I had that game. I was in that game. Your justice demanded the debt to be called in, but, but your grace provided a substitutionary atonement. You can't understand Isaac without understanding Jesus. A lot of parallels, right? Because Jesus carried his own wood up a hill. The lamb was stuck in the thorns as Jesus was struck with thorns. If you're a first century Jewish reader reading the account of the crucifixion, you're like, oh, okay, this is the story of Isaac. And everybody's like, exactly, exactly. The story of Isaac is like this huge neon sign that points forward to Jesus. When you come to Christ, your life doesn't necessarily get terribly easier. There are still difficulties. And sometimes you begin to wonder, is God really on my side? The more you lean into God, the more he's stretching you and pulling you outside of your comfort zone. And sometimes it feels like, oh, you're killing me. So the late Elizabeth Elliot tells of the time when she was visiting some friends who owned a ranch. They were shepherds. It was a ranch in northern Wales. And on this particular day, she observes one of the shepherds grabbing one of the sheep. And you know how when you, you pick up your dog and your dog's all of a sudden like, where's the ground? Where's the ground? You know, it's kind of freaking out a little bit. Well, that's what happens with the sheep. You pick it up and all of a sudden it can't feel the ground underneath it. So it's like getting real nervous. And the shepherd picks up the sheep and then places it in this vat of fluid, which is like this homemade concoction that is an insecticide. Because the shepherd knows that sheep are particularly vulnerable to insect bites and infection. And so in, in order to keep the insects away, the sheep has to be dipped inside this solution. And so as that shepherd lowers the sheep inside that vat, what does the sheep do? Starts getting mental. Like, I gotta get out of here, I'm dying, I'm dying. It's fighting and fighting and fighting, but the shepherd understands that the most vulnerable part of a sheep is what? 
its head. So she observed the shepherd taking his hand, placing on the sheep's head, and plunging it underneath that solution. And when that happened, in that moment, the sheep begins to think, you're killing me. I'm dying at the hands of my shepherd. shepherd would just press in more, stronger. Understanding that unless the sheep is completely covered, chances are it's going to die. And she asked herself, I wonder what it's like to feel like your shepherd is killing you. And then she remembered the death of her husband, who was a missionary. He died at the very hands of the people he was seeking to reach with the gospel of Jesus. And she said, oh, I know what that feels like. Elizabeth Elliot would go on to write some of the deepest and most meaningful words ever written about human suffering and the presence of God. She had her own test, and she would tell you, at the time, I thought God was killing me. But then the third day came, and God provided. And God gave me a ministry I would never ask for. But what a joy that I'm able to enter into other people's suffering and be comforted and help them understand that God will provide. You can't understand the story of Isaac without understanding the story of Jesus. If Abraham was at the foot of the cross, undoubtedly he would say, got it. Totally understand now. How do you know you love something? You're willing to sacrifice. The deeper the sacrifice, the deeper the love. So when the Bible says that God has given his only son, see, that's Genesis language. That's the language of Genesis chapter 22. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was the ram stuck in the thorn bush. You're spared. He's sacrificed. The conclusion is God cares about you. So on this Father's Day, uh, I'm going to have you just bow your heads if you would, please. Ask you a simple question. What is driving your life? What is it, perhaps, that you need to turn away from loving so that your love can be placed upon God? See, what happens is, when your love for God becomes the ultimate thing in your life, then you begin to love others in the way that they need you to love them. Because you're so secure in the love that God has for you. See, that's where it starts. See, that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like, why did Jesus have to die? So that God could demonstrate his love. And then what happens is lives are, are, are driven by this love, Christian lives, and we become the kind of people that the world needs, servants in the community, people of hope. We become the salve that our world desperately needs because we're not constantly searching to have this love need met. It's already been met, and that's the thing that begins to melt our hearts. What's driving your life?
Consider your ultimate love. You and I were bound for death like Isaac, but we were spared. Why? Because God will provide. Every human being that's ever lived has walked in darkness at some point, but there's a way out. One day, the third day will come. It came for Abraham. Father, we're grateful for this text, for what it means on this Father's Day. Grateful for the men in this room who take that calling seriously. And Lord, maybe the takeaway for each of us as fathers is to evaluate where the ultimate love lies so that we can serve those around us best. Father, I pray that your spirit would use these words, move in our hearts. Lord, there are those here, maybe they're thinking, I don't even know why I'm here. Well, not here by accident. Pray that you'd continue to refine us, help us understand what are the harder, sometimes more complicated, yet deeper truths of the scripture that are meant to grow our spiritual roots deeper, to know you more, to rest in you. We thank you for your love, as was demonstrated through the death of your son, Jesus. And for that, we are so grateful. God's people said, amen.